Well, good morning. I want to especially welcome the parents who are with us here on Parents Weekend. We are finishing up a two-part series on the prayer life of Jesus. This morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll be looking at Matthew 6, 9 to 13, the Lord's Prayer. Before we do, I'd like to share with you, I did some research on prayer in the United States in preparation for this sermon. Uh, Most recent statistics I can find indicate that about 90% of residents in the United States say that they pray. 90% of the U.S. population says it prays. That doesn't mean that they're praying to our God or praying like we do. It simply means that they pray on an at least periodic basis. And of those 90%, over half of them say that they pray on a daily basis. At least once a day they're praying. That's a lot of people praying here in the States. Couldn't find similar research for the world as a whole, but I, I think those statistics would probably prove true for the, for the whole planet. All major religions include the element of prayer. I think it's a safe assumption that 90% of the world's population prays. World's population is 6.8 billion people. 90% of that, 6.1 billion people on this planet who pray. Of those 6.1 billion, it's probably over half, over 3 billion of them who pray every day or more. In other words, there is a lot of prayer going on on this planet. Prayer is nearly universal in this world. Human beings as a species love to pray. Pray is common across all races and creeds. Uh, Rodney Stark, a sociology professor at Baylor, observed that prayer is one of the most common and unacknowledged activities on the planet. We don't talk about it often, but most of the human race does it. We all pray, especially here in the Bible Belt in the south of the United States. We love to pray. We pray all the time. We pray in private. We pray in public. We pray before meals. We pray when we put our kids down for bed. We pray in church. We pray before football games at Tiger Stadium. We pray all the time. Prayer is a common part of our lives. Prayer is a major component of life for all of us. And yet it's a major part of life that we've really received very little training in. I want you to think about it for a moment. Compare prayer to driving. Before the state of Texas would allow me to drive my own car, I had to do a bunch of stuff. I had to take a six-week mind-numbing class. Uh, I had to read a, a hundreds-of-page book full of laws and regulations. I had to go through instruction with a, a driving instructor in this special car. Uh, they built it where she had her own brake pedal. I don't know if you remember that. It was the most infuriating thing ever. You're going down the road, you do anything wrong, and boom, she jams on that brake pedal. It was good training, though, constantly being critiqued in my method. And then it culminated with a test. I had to go pass a test before the state of Texas would allow me to drive a car. Now compare that to prayer. I think all of us would agree prayer is a far more important part of life than driving. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher, says, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. We learned that from Jesus last week, that prayer is a number one priority in our life. Prayer is one of the most important things we will ever do. It's so much more important than driving, and yet I've received so much less training in prayer. Never took a class on prayer, not even in seminary. I never had to read a book on prayer. I've never had a prayer instructor critiquing my method. I never had to take a test on prayer. Prayer is something that we receive very little training and we simply assume we know how to do it, don't we? We grow up assuming we know how to pray. We pray all the time, but we never really think about it. We never really talk about it. We don't receive training in prayer. We simply assume we know how to do it. Now, is that a safe assumption? I don't think so. 
I think prayer is a little too important to simply assume that we know how to do it. I think we would be wise from time to time to pause and step back and look at our method in prayer. Are we praying well? Are we praying correctly? Are we praying rightly? Are we praying in a way that honors God? Are we praying in a way that is effective and powerful and life-changing and world-changing? How do we pray well? How do we pray rightly? Well, fortunately, God has given us an answer and it's this morning's passage. The Lord's Prayer is designed to give us an answer to the question, how do we pray well? Now, the Lord's Prayer actually appears two places in your Bible, Matthew 6, which we're looking at this morning, and then Luke chapter 11, which uh, Carl read to us a few minutes ago. Uh, I just want to reread you the first verse of the Luke 11 account. It sets a, a little bit of context for the Lord's Prayer. It says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So, and then you have the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus' response to the request, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord's Prayer is is Jesus' instructions, his response to to the request to teach us to pray. So let's look at the Lord's Prayer as it's found in Matthew chapter six. We'll start in verse nine. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now let me point out a couple notes here. Some of you have another sentence at the end of verse 13. Uh, If you have an NAS like me, it's in brackets. Some of your translations don't have anything else in verse 13. It reads something like, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Uh, The reason that it's absent from some of your translations and in brackets in the rest of ours is that sentence wasn't actually part of the Lord's Prayer. It was inserted by the church hundreds of years after Jesus was around as this prayer became a formal part of worship services. It's a beautiful sentence, beautiful sentence, but it's not part of the original Lord's Prayer. So we're not studying that this morning. Second thing to note, we call this passage the Lord's Prayer. That's actually a misnomer, isn't it? This isn't actually Jesus' prayer for himself, is it? How do you know that? Look, Look back. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. That's not something Jesus ever prayed. Jesus never prayed, God, forgive me of my sins. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. This isn't Jesus' prayer for himself. A, A better title would actually be the disciples' prayer. This is our prayer. It's really ironic here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we ask the question, how do we pray, who's the person giving us an answer? It's Jesus who is God. That's the cool part of this. It's God in human flesh telling us how he wants us to pray. That's what this is. This is a prayer for us. It's the disciples' prayer delivered from God himself in human flesh. So that's what we have in the Lord's Prayer. It's really a prayer for us. Now, this morning as we go through the Lord's Prayer, I'll confess to you, the Lord's Prayer is one of the deepest, richest, uh, most theologically dense passages you'll find in Scripture. I can't come close to covering it comprehensively this morning. So what I've tried to do is just pull some lessons from it. There's five lessons I want to share with you that we learn in the Lord's Prayer. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But there's a lot more that you can learn out there. There's whole great books written on the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of stuff here. But we're just going to content ourselves with five lessons from the Lord's Prayer. So let's look at those. Uh, First lesson that you get right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is that the Lord's Prayer assumes a relationship with God. Right there in the first line, how does it begin? 
our Father. The Lord's Prayer assumes that we have the right to call God our Father. That's where it begins. It assumes that we are children of God. Now, do all human beings have the right to call God our Father? Well, no, they don't. We're not born onto this planet. We're not born into this life as children of God. Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We're born into this life not as children of God, but as children of wrath. Children under the punishment of God, under the condemnation of God. We're born into this world as sinners. Our sin makes us liable to the wrath and judgment of God. We're born separated from God. We are not his children by birth. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that. We can't earn our way into the family of God. There's no amount of church attendance or good deeds or charitable giving to the poor that you can do to earn your way into the family of God. You can't earn it because at the end of the day, you're still a sinner. You are still by nature born a child of wrath. Fortunately, though, God himself has provided a solution. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We're not born children of God. We become children of God through faith in Jesus, through believing in Jesus, believing that Jesus is God's son who died for our sins and rose from the dead. When you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, at that moment, God transfers you out of the kingdom of Satan and into his family. You become a child of God at that moment through faith. Okay, so there's 6.1 billion people on this planet praying. But are there 6.1 billion prayers being answered by God? No, because sadly, the vast majority of those people are not yet children of God. Prayer for it to be effective, for it to be powerful, for it to be biblical, must be offered through a relationship. Prayer is for those who are children of God. We become children of God through faith in Jesus. Now, there's one catch to that. There is one prayer from a person who's not a child of God that God will answer, and that's a prayer of faith. That's the prayer that says to God, God, I am a sinner. I can't earn my way to you, but I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. When a, when a person who is not yet a child of God prays that prayer, God hears that prayer, God answers that prayer and instantaneously makes them a child of his. Forever they are a child of his. Okay, so the Lord's Prayer, first lesson we wanna draw from it is it assumes a relationship. It assumes that we have the right to call God our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first lesson. Second lesson that I think we see very clearly in this prayer is it is meant to be a basic model of prayer, not a formula that we simply memorize and parrot to God. This prayer is a model. It's not a formula to just memorize the words and parrot it to God. Let me prove that to you. First, look at verse seven. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Sadly, in the last couple thousand years, many sincere, well-meaning believers have taken the Lord's Prayer and they've turned it into an excuse for meaningless repetition. They've memorized the words and they just parrot it to God over and over again, expecting that God will bless them if they say this more and more and more. But that's not Jesus' intent. He never intended us to memorize his words and say them over and over and over again to God as a formula that would somehow bring blessing. That's not at all what the Lord's Prayer is about. Second thing that proves to us that it's not a formula to be parroted is did you notice when we went through it, there's a lot of stuff missing 
from the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of good stuff that we know should characterize prayer that Jesus doesn't include. His is just a short model of prayer. It doesn't include any thanksgiving. There's no thanks for what God has done, but we know we should be thanking God in our prayers. There's no specific confession of sins. It's just general, God forgive us, but we know we should pray. God, forgive me for doing this. Forgive me for doing that. There's no intercessory prayer. We know we should be praying for the sick and hurting among us. Jesus doesn't do that. That's because he's not giving us a formula to memorize and parrot to God. He's giving us a model that teaches us the big ideas of prayer. That's what we want to do this morning as we go through the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to give you some formula that you repeat over and over again to God. We're going to study the Lord's Prayer and discover from it two big ideas that should shape our prayer. Two big ideas that should characterize all our prayers that we give to God. Okay, the two big ideas split roughly half and half in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is made up of of six requests and they break down evenly. First three requests are the first big idea of prayer. Second three requests are the second big idea of prayer. So we're gonna spend most of the rest of this morning digging into the Lord's Prayer and learning the big ideas because that's what this is about. It's about following the model, learning the big ideas, not simply memorizing the words, but getting those big ideas and integrating them into our prayer lives. So let's start out. Let's look at the first big idea of prayer. Um, We're going to look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 10. Notice that the first half of the Lord's Prayer begins with an address. Our Father in heaven. Jesus is calling out to the God to whom we pray, our Father in heaven. Now we talked a moment ago about this term, our Father. What I didn't tell you at that time is that when Jesus stood in front of this crowd of first century Jews and began his prayer with the words, our father, he was being shocking. He was actually being a little bit offensive to the crowd of Jews to whom he was speaking. No first century Jew would ever pray, our father. That was too personal. That was too intimate. God is way up there. He is holy and exalted. They would never approach him as our father. Maybe they'd call him the father, but never our father. Jesus debunks that right from the beginning of his prayer. He says, God wants you to approach him as a child who is loved, not as someone who's cowering in fear. Approach God intimately. Approach him personally. He is your dad who loves you. You are his loved child. When you enter into prayer, you are entering into prayer with someone who loves you, who some, someone who is your father. So come before God with intimacy. Come before God personally. That's the first thing Jesus reveals. But this address is really interesting because Jesus balances that with the next set of words. Who is in heaven? Anytime the Bible refers to the fact that God is in heaven, it is reminding us that we have a dad who should not be taken lightly. We have a dad who is infinitely powerful We have a dad who rules over earth from heaven, who rules almighty, who is creator, who is sovereign. When we approach our father, when we approach God, yes, we should approach him personally, intimately as our father who loves us, yet our father who deserves respect, our father who is powerful, who is almighty. Solomon reminds us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. In other words, prayer is a sacred thing. In prayer, we are coming before our Father who loves us, but he is Father of all. He is King. He is King of kings. He is Creator. He is Almighty. So I love it. Right from the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we have this perfect balance of intimacy and respect. 
Prayer is both personal and it is respectful. That's where it begins. Now, after this address to the Father, Jesus gives us the first three requests. And each of these requests is really a plea with God to act, not to act for my benefit or to act for me, but to act worldwide for himself. That's really where the prayer begins. Let's look at each of those requests. First one, hallowed be your name. That's a very odd phrase in English. What does hallowed be your name mean? Let me unpack that a little bit for you. We'll start with the word name. Now, in in modern days, name doesn't mean much. My name is Blake, B-L-A-K-E. Doesn't mean much. That's simply how you get my attention. You say, Blake, I look at you. That's all it means in the modern world, but it meant a lot more in biblical times. A person's name was who they are. A person's name was all of their attributes, all of their character, all of their actions. In other words, to refer to the name of God is to refer to God himself. Jesus is praying, God, may you be hallowed. But what is hallowed about? That's kind of a really weird word for us. Hallowed means literally to regard as holy, to respect something as holy. It doesn't mean make holy. God is already holy. Hallowed means to regard God as holy. Now, holy is one of those key biblical words that we have a hard time wrapping our brains around. Uh, in, in this most basic sense, holy means set apart. It means God's not like us. God is different than us. God is creator. He's sovereign. He's absolute. God is perfect. He is not in any way corrupted by the sin of this world. That's what holiness means. So Jesus is really praying, God, may all people regard you, respect you as holy. What does that actually look like? That's still a little too theological for me to picture. It's kind of a weird phrase. Um, We get a really neat clue. We get really neat information in the book of Isaiah. uh, Chapter 29, verse 23 says, they will sanctify my name. Now, sanctify is the same word, holy. So they will regard as holy my name. Indeed, they will regard as holy the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. There it is, right at the end of the verse. This parallel phrase, it helps us understand the idea. What does it mean to regard God as holy? It means to stand in awe of God. So what is Jesus praying? He's praying, Father, may all human beings from one end of this planet to the other recognize how awesome you are. Recognize how powerful you are, how sovereign, how good, how righteous. May all of them see how awesome you are and as a result be rocked back on their heels and stand in awe of you. May all of us stand in awe of your splendor and majesty and power. It's the first part of the prayer. May all human beings stand in awe of you. That sets the stage for the second request that Jesus makes. Lord, your kingdom come. Father, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God in its most basic sense is the rule of God, the authority of God. Now, God is sovereign over all, and yet who rules over this planet at the moment? Satan, not God. Bible tells us Satan is the God of this world. That started back in Genesis 3. Satan entered into the Garden of Eden, and he began, he launched a worldwide rebellion against the rule of God, and sadly, we followed him, didn't we? Humanity followed Satan into rebellion against God. Now, at that moment in time, God could have simply crushed the rebellion. He could have wiped us all out, but he chose not to. In his grace and in his sovereignty, he allowed the rebellion to continue, and it continues today. Even though God is sovereign, this world is under the rule of Satan and his allies, the sinful world around us. Satan is in charge of this world. And so what Jesus is praying here is, God, may you reestablish your rule on this earth. 
May you take us back to pre-Genesis three days. Back when your rule was perfectly accomplished on this planet. May you reestablish your rule on earth. Now, there's a couple senses in this prayer. There's a present sense. When Jesus prays, your kingdom come. In the present time, that's a prayer for the lost. How is God's kingdom coming to earth today? It's coming to earth through evangelism in the lives of individual men and women. That's what, that's what the gospel is. It is a message that if a person believes, it transfers them out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. That's what happens in salvation. A person believes that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead. God plucks them out of the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of his son. His kingdom is reestablished in that individual's life. So this is first a prayer for the lost. Just like we talked about last week, Jesus wants us praying for the salvation of, a, of the lost. Not just in a general sense, but in a specific sense. The people in my life, my family, my neighbors, my, my friends who don't know the Lord, I should be praying for their salvation on a regular basis. Lord, reestablish your kingdom in the life of Mary and Chris and Scott, all these people who don't know you. Bring your kingdom through the gospel. Open their eyes to the truth about Jesus. So that as they see Jesus, as they understand that he died for them and rose from the dead, they can enter your kingdom. That's the first sense of this prayer. It's a prayer for the lost. But it's not just a prayer for the lost. There's also a future sense here. The next big event that we await in human history is the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back and he is going to reestablish the rule of God, not just in the lives of individuals, but planet-wide. From one end of the planet to the other, he is going to wipe out the rebellion and reinstitute his kingdom on earth. So this is not just a prayer for the lost, it is also a prayer for the speedy return of Christ. This is a prayer, God, please send Jesus today. Send him soon to crush this rebellion and reestablish your kingdom on earth. Okay, so Jesus has, has prayed that all human beings would stand in awe of God. Then he prays, God, will you reestablish your rule right now in the lives of individuals and as soon as possible through your son all across the planet? Now that's very similar to the third request, the next line of the prayer, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this word will in Greek, it can also be translated desire. Jesus is praying, Lord, may your desires be done or accomplished as perfectly on earth as they are in heaven. Now, how well are God's desires accomplished in heaven? Perfectly. Everything God wants, he gets in heaven because there's no rebellion in heaven. Heaven is perfectly in allegiance to God. So Jesus is praying, God, may that be true here because on the earth today, how well is God's desire accomplished? Not so well. First Timothy chapter two, Paul tells us, God desires all men to be saved. Are they? Not at the moment. Because this world continues in rebellion against God, men and women continue to reject the grace of God. Not all men are being saved. Even though God wants us, it's not happening because the world is still in rebellion. So Jesus is praying, God, may your desires be accomplished on earth as perfectly as they are in heaven. May every human being come to perfectly do what you desire, to perfectly obey and honor you. May all your desires be accomplished on earth as they are in heaven. Now, this request really turns personal though, doesn't it? Because for me to pray, God, may all human beings follow your will, uh, who's included in that? Me. I can't pray, God, may your desire be done on earth while I hang out in sin. God, may your will be accomplished while I stay in rebellion. I can't pray that. When I pray, God, let your will be done on earth as perfectly as it is in heaven, I'm implying in my own life too. In this prayer, I'm I'm getting personal. I'm saying, God, let your will be done in me and throughout the earth. It's a very personal prayer request. 
God, may your desires be accomplished first in me and in my family and throughout the earth. Okay, so that's the, that's the third request. May your will be done. Let's kind of pull this together. The first half of the Lord's Prayer. Let me give you my own translation of, of this. Uh, again, nothing magical or special about these words, but this is just my own translation to try to capture what Jesus is saying. Our Father who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. So that's, that's what Jesus is praying. Now let's step back for a minute. Let's ask, what's the big idea of the first half of the Lord's Prayer? What's the big idea here? Did you notice that throughout the first half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is never looking at us? Throughout the first half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' eyes are fixed on God. All four of these lines constitute worship. Worship is where we declare how great God is. That's what this first half of the Lord's Prayer is about. We're declaring, God, you are Father. You are in heaven. You are holy. Your kingdom is best. Your desires are best. These are lines of worship. They're also lines of submission. Saying, God, you're Father and I'm the child. God, your will is best, not mine. God, your kingdom deserves to rule, not mine. What Jesus is revealing to us, the first big idea of prayer is that prayer should start with worship and submission. Biblical prayer starts with our eyes not on us, on our needs, on our desires, but on God, on God's priorities, on God's desire. That's where biblical prayer starts, with worship and submission. Now, quick caveat, when you're going throughout your day and you have a hard situation, you have a hard conversation coming up, or you're about to take a test, it's okay to offer a real quick prayer of request. God, please help me on this test. That's okay. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the application last week, Remember, I challenged you, Jesus was teaching us that prayer should be a number one priority in our lives, and I challenged you to set aside 20 minutes a day in prayer, at least a few times a week, 20 minutes alone with God. That's what we're talking about, extended times of prayer. Where should you begin? In worship and submission. You begin with your eyes fixed on God, not on you. You begin with your eyes fixed on God's desires, on his kingdom, on his priorities, not with human needs or desires. Prayer that is all about our needs, that is all about our desires, is not biblical prayer. That's idolatrous prayer. That's prayer that says to God, I'm at the center of the universe. You exist to serve me. That's not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer recognizes, God, you are at the center of the universe. Your will, your kingdom, your desires, that's what matters most. Biblical prayer starts with worship and submission. Now, worship and submission can look different in our lives. It can look different in our prayers. It's not always these words. Uh, Often the best thing you can do is go for a walk outside. Just spend time thanking God, worshiping him for what he's created. Uh, You can spend time looking through your prayer journal, reflecting on how God has answered prayers in your life and just thanking him. God, thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace at work in my life. Worship and submission may mean spending time praying scripture. You can turn, especially to the book of Psalms. Just read it as prayer to the Lord. That's worship and submission. Whatever you do, your prayers need to begin with worship and submission. Begin with your eyes fixed on God, on his greatness, on his desires, on his kingdom. That's what's most important. That's where prayer begins, by putting God at the center of the universe, recognizing who he is. Now, once you've spent time in worship and submission, once you've praised God for his greatness, once you've submitted your life to his will, then Jesus does want you to move on to personal stuff. 
Once you've started with your eyes fixed on God and you spent time in worship and submission, it's good to turn your eyes to yourself and to other human beings. That's the second big idea of prayer. The, the rest of the Lord's Prayer, the second half of it, the last three requests, they turn to us. They turn to our needs. Jesus gets personal. He wants us to lift up our personal requests to God. Remember, God is our Father. He loves us. He cares about us. Having started with worship and submission, we turn to our own needs and desires. And and Jesus mentions three in particular. Let's look at each of these three specific personal requests that we're to make of the Lord on a regular basis. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now let me flesh that out for you. Uh, bread is, is a metonymy. It refers to food as a whole. Jesus is saying, uh, God, Father, give us our daily food. Now the, the word daily, actually in Greek, it only appears here, very confusing word. I think what Jesus is praying literally is, God, give us the food we need to live through the next 24 hours. That's what he means. Give us the allotment of food that me and my family need to live, to survive for the next 24 hours. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine us praying that. I've got plenty of food in my pantry to live for way more than 24 hours. I can just go to McDonald's. I've got plenty of money in my pocket to buy enough food to live for another 24 hours. We need to remember when Jesus was teaching this prayer, most of the audience to whom he taught the Lord's Prayer were people whom we would call poor. Actually, desperately poor. The majority of people in the ancient world owned no land, had very few possessions, had almost no savings. They ate only by working, and each day that they worked, they earned exactly enough money to pay for one day's worth of food for their family. If you're the breadwinner of your home and you get sick, your family does not eat the next day. They were literally dependent on God on a 24-hour basis to provide food. If God does not provide food, I die. That's what this prayer is. God, give us the material things, the food that we need for me and my family to stay alive. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that prayer, but the the same principle applies to us. What Jesus is doing is telling us God cares about our material and physical needs. God wants us to lift up to him our material and physical needs. There is nothing too mundane, too everyday, too small to put before the Lord. Now, for us, this is gonna include things like money to pay our bills, God wants you to pray for money to pay your bills. God wants you to pray for a job if you're looking for a job or afraid you're gonna lose your job. He wants you to be lifting that job up to him. God wants you to pray for a car so that you can get to your job. God wants you to pray for a house to take care of your family. God wants you to pray for physical health for you and others. God wants you to pray for physical safety. These are all needs that God cares about. Again, we don't start our prayers by looking at us. We start with worship and submission, but then we turn to us and we look at our material and physical needs. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too mundane for God. He wants us every day to lift up our needs to him. God, please give us the money and the job and the car and the health and the safety that my family needs to make it through another day of life. That's what this first request is. It's the material and physical needs that all of us need to get through another day. Jesus moves on from there. Next specific request he makes is verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, This word debt is not talking about financial debt. It's talking about moral debt. In other words, forgive us of our sins. That's what this is. It's a prayer of confession. Now let me say right from the beginning, this is not a prayer of salvation. This is not the unbeliever turning to the Lord and praying, God, forgive me of my sins, give me eternal life. That's not what this is. How do we know this is not the prayer of salvation? Remember how the prayer started. Our Father, 
The people praying this are already saved. This is a prayer meant for believers. Second way we know this isn't the prayer of salvation is this is a model prayer. This is how we are to pray every day. This is not a one-time thing. This is for us every day. As often as we sin, we are to turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. This is the prayer that John, the Apostle John, mentions in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we need to realize is as believers, we, we are already children of God. We're already forgiven in an absolute sense of our sin. And yet as a believer, every time I sin, my sin is erecting a wall between God and I. I'm still his child, I'm still his son, I'll still spend eternity with him in heaven, but God can't fellowship with sin, God can't bless sin, so my sins are erecting a wall between God and I, we are estranged because of my sin, but every time I turn to the Lord in confession, he responds in forgiveness. What is forgiveness? It's him pulling out a sledgehammer and knocking down the wall. That's what forgiveness is. He knocks down the wall that separates us so I can enter into his presence again, so I can enjoy his blessings, so I can enjoy his favor. Every time I confess my sins, God is faithful to forgive me, to wipe out, cleanse that wall away. So that's what's going on here. As often as I sin, I'm to turn to the Lord in confession, acknowledging God, I was wrong when I did this. Now, verse 12 turns tricky at the end. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Talked a number of weeks ago about forgiveness. We learned that for believers, receiving forgiveness from God is contingent on us offering forgiveness to one another. In other words, if you sin against me and I am unwilling to forgive you, God won't forgive me. Again, it's not that I'm losing my salvation. It's not that I'm gonna go to hell. I'm still a child of God. What's happening is my sin of unforgiveness, my choice to not forgive you has put a wall between God and I and God's not gonna knock that wall down until I forgive you. So long as I persist in my sin of unforgiveness towards you, that wall remains. I don't receive forgiveness from God. I don't enjoy fellowship with God. I don't enjoy the favor and blessings of God in my life because of unforgiveness. So Jesus is reminding us, if we wanna receive this cleansing from God, this forgiveness from God, we must be willing to forgive one another. Okay, so we've prayed for our material and physical needs. Now we're praying for forgiveness of our sins. Third and final request, verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or literally from the evil one, from Satan. Now it sounds like there's two requests there, but it's really two sides of the same coin. There's really one request here. And let me help you understand what Jesus is praying for with a little diagram. I'm a very visual person. Um, What Jesus is saying, what he's reminding us is all of us face trials in life. A trial is simply a difficulty that God allows in your life, a challenge that God allows you to face. God allows trials into your life, why? Because he wants to turn that trial into an opportunity for victory, honor, and growth. The difficulties we face, the trials, the challenges we face in life, they're meant by God as opportunities for us to overcome, us to live in faithfulness and obedience and by faithfulness and obedience to earn honor and reward and glory from God and grow in our lives. One of the things that grows us in maturity more than anything else is trials. God means trials for good in our lives. And not only does he mean a trial to bring victory and honor and and growth, but he also gives us strength in the middle of the trial. For all of us who who are believers, God has caused his Holy Spirit to live within us. His Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He has all power. He can help us turn any trial into victory. All we have to do is ask. 
God allows trials into our lives so that through the power of his spirit, we can grow and have victory and earn honor and reward from the Lord. That's God's intention in the midst of trials. Unfortunately, when you face a trial or a challenge in life, God's not the only one at work. He's not the only one influencing you. There's another actor, and that's Satan. Satan working with his allies, the sinful world and your sinful flesh, they have a desire too. They want to turn that trial into an excuse for sin. They want to turn that trial into an opportunity for temptation to lead you to doubt, to lead you to disobey the Lord so that you respond to trials in sin, so that you respond in dishonor. Okay, so when we face a difficulty, when we face a challenge in life, there's two agents working on us, God through his spirit towards victory and honor, Satan in the world and our flesh towards dishonor and disobedience. The prayer that Jesus is telling us to pray is, God, deliver us from the bottom path here. Deliver us from the intention of Satan in this world and our flesh to lead us into temptation and into sin. Deliver us from that. Help us to stay on the top path through the power of your spirit. Strengthen us through your almighty spirit to respond in obedience and faithfulness to this trial so that we might grow in our spiritual lives and earn honor and reward from you. That's what this prayer is. This prayer is based on the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man is God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Jesus is challenging us. Pray every time you face a trial, pray, God, help me to see your way of escape. Help me to take the way of escape that you've provided so that I escape from the path of Satan, this temptation to sin and dishonor. Help me to walk in obedience. Help me to honor you in the midst of this trial. So the three parts of, of this second half of the Lord's Prayer, we pray for our physical and material needs, we pray for forgiveness of our sins, and we pray for spiritual strength to overcome temptation and walk in obedience. That's the Lord's Prayer. We can summarize it. Let me go ahead and give you my overall translation of this prayer. Uh, Our Father who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. Give us what we need for this coming day. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive others and do not let us fall to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus is praying. Now, this is my translation. Don't write these words down and memorize these words. There's nothing magical about these words. These are just my words trying to explain it. If you really want to learn the Lord's Prayer, let me give you an application, something specific right now. Let me encourage you today or tomorrow, go home, reread the Lord's Prayer, and based on what you've learned today, rewrite it in your own words. That's the best way to learn it. Rewrite the Lord's Prayer in your own words. It can be an expansive rewriting. It can be longer if you want to encapsulate a lot of stuff. Rewrite it in your own words. And you're not seeking for perfect words. It's not about the words. It's about the big ideas. However you rewrite it, remember, it needs to contain two big things. It needs to start with worship and submission and then turn to personal requests. Requests both for our physical and material needs and our spiritual needs. If you're a parent, one of the best things as a parent I think you can do is sit down with your kids and rewrite the Lord's Prayer together as a family in words they understand. So it'll look different based on the age of your kids. Rewrite it as a family in words that all of you can understand and participate in. Now what that will do is prepare you for the, for the fifth and final lesson. I told you there's five lessons from the Lord's Prayer. Here's the last one. By rewriting it individually or as a family, it prepares you for the last part, last lesson. Now, did you notice that the Lord's Prayer is communal. It's not individual. There is no me or my in the Lord's prayer. 
It's all us and our. Now the Lord's Prayer does apply to our individual prayer lives. This is still the model that should characterize our private prayer, but it's interesting when Jesus chose how to teach us to pray, he chose to teach us in a communal fashion. The Lord's Prayer is first and foremost a model for how we should pray together, how we should pray as families. You rewrite the Lord's Prayer as a family, pray it together. It's meant for a group. It's meant for us as a family, as a congregation to pray together. So it applies to our individual lives, but it's meant first and foremost for us as a community. And so I wanna end this morning by applying the Lord's Prayer as literally as I know how. We are going to pray it together. That's what it was meant to be, a confession, a prayer that we utter to the Lord together. We'll go ahead and use my translation again. There's nothing magical about my translation. Don't simply memorize my words and pair them to God. As we say it together, I want you to mean it. As we say it together, mean the words that you're saying, these words of submission and worship and these words of personal request. This is an opportunity for us to pray this together. So if you'll stand with me, we're gonna pray this as a family and then I'll close us in prayer. I say it with me. Our Father who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. Give us what we need for this coming day. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive others and do not let us fall to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord God, we lift this prayer to you. We thank you so much that you would want to hear a prayer from us. Father, we confess a sin to you. All of us, including myself, are guilty of praying too often with our eyes fixed only on us, only on our, on our needs and our desires. Lord, please forgive us for that. Lord, we acknowledge that you are great and mighty, that you are at the center of the universe, that your will, that your kingdom, that your desires are what matters most in life. We praise you that you are our Father, that you are high and exalted that you are holy and perfect and majestic and wonderful. We praise you and thank you that Christ is coming soon to bring your kingdom to earth, how we look forward and long for that day. We pray, Lord, that your desires would be accomplished in all of us, Lord. Lord, we pray and thank you also that you care about our needs, that you care about money for our bills and health for our bodies, Lord. Thank you that you care about all of our daily needs. Lord, we pray that you would meet our needs both physically and spiritually, Lord. Continue to cleanse us of sin, to strengthen us, to walk with you in obedience. Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. That's where we began this morning, Lord. You're so gracious to us. Thank you for the grace of prayer, that you, the ruler of the universe, would care to hear from us. Thank you that you listen to our prayers, that you answer our prayers. Thank you that you do all of this through your son, Jesus. We praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that it makes us your children forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. God bless you.